Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you for coming out this evening. The rain has blessedly held off tonight. It's a gorgeous evening and a wonderful evening to talk about sin. So, my name is Fred Appel. I'm the senior editor for religion at Princeton University Press. And Princeton University Press is a co-sponsor of the Princeton Public Lectures series um, with our partners, the Princeton Public Lectures Committee. And these particular lectures featuring Professor Paula Fredrickson of Boston University are known as the Spencer Trask Lectures. And I've been asked to say just a few words about the Spencer Trask Lectures, which actually have a very interesting history. Uh, This lecture series was founded in 1891 Uh, with a gift of $10,000 from one Spencer Trask, a graduate of the class of 1866. And the purpose of these lectures was to, is to, select lecturers who will emphasize the importance of the humanities. Uh, Some previous Spencer Trask lectures have included Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, Bertrand Russell, uh, Margaret Mead, um, and more recently, just last season, uh, novelist Richard Ford and uh, sociologist Alan Wolfe. We're very pleased to have Professor Paula Fredrickson come to give the Spencer Trask Lectures this evening. To introduce her, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Emeritus Professor of Religion John Gager, who happens to have been one of Paula's professors here at Princeton University during her time here. John? A few minutes ago, I was asked if I had the materials necessary for the introduction. Uh, I've known Paula for, I, I, I like to say, more than 10 years now. A lot more than 10 years. And I don't need any materials to introduce her. What I will give you is a brief survey of her academic history, and I emphasize brief. Paula began her higher education at Wellesley College, where she learned, among other things, how to pour tea, and some very bad ways of studying early Christianity. What I have in mind is an approach to early Christianity without the framework, without the foreground of Judaism. After Wellesley, she crossed the ocean and studied at Oxford. And both of those early lessons were reinforced at Oxford. Tea remained important there. And early Christianity was still studied by and large as though Judaism had never existed. But then she came to Princeton. At Princeton, she learned that tea was not all that important. (laughs) And she was introduced to what was in those days becoming, it hadn't yet fully become, something known as the Princeton School. The Princeton School characterized, among other things, by the notion that Christianity must always be looked at through the lens of Judaism 
And the story of Christianity must always be intertwined with the story of Judaism in the ancient world. From Princeton, she went on to uh, a series of teaching positions, most recently uh, at Boston University, with occasional excursions to Tel Aviv uh, in Israel. She has produced a series of hugely important books on the origins of Christianity, which have had a revolutionary impact on the field. She has worked more recently on the lamentable and tragic history of Christian anti-Judaism and is soon to publish uh, a book which will have a major impact on on the field uh, called St. Augustine and the Jews. Tonight, we welcome her back as the leading light in the Princeton School, uh, one of whom I am proud to say that she has pushed the limits of what we represent here beyond anything I was ever capable of imagining. And so it is with great pride and delight that I introduce Paula Fredrickson. I was also the main major Red Sox fan in the religion department back in the 1970s. Can you hear me? All right, great. Um, Thank you for coming out after dinner. I know it's sort of an unnatural act for many of us after we get comfortable in at home, and I am thrilled that you're here tonight. I have a really interesting story, I hope, to tell you over the course of the next three days. And the pictures that I would have started this lecture out with to uh, captivate you and give you a visual representation of the ideas I'll be exploring over the course of the next three days, we're not able to get through the computer and into the screen because of sublunar demons, about which you will know much more um, by Thursday night, if you uh, stay with me, but believe me, they're the ones who are responsible. I would like to thank the um, Committee of the Public Lectures for inviting me. I have to say that uh, Fred Appel's introduction reminded me of exactly what I myself did um, once um, I was introduced and he had uh, gotten me thinking seriously about this project. Some two years ago, I said I would love to do the lecture, and then I went onto the PU um, webpage and saw the people who have given this lecture and scared myself to death. But that was two years ago, and I think, Fred, I'll be fine anyway. And um, by looking at sin, this will be something that might not be as... um, kinetic and um, popular as you might have hoped from the title. It's about the idea of sin, although one of the reasons I accepted the uh, challenge to organize the history of ancient Christianity this way is because there is so much primary material available on sin. But what we're going to be talking about is the way that sin, as a concept, organized 
a whole host of other important ideas, social ones, theological ones, ritual ones, so that sin itself, if you take that as your plumb line into this material, gives you very interesting insights into ideas about God, into ideas about the organization of the cosmos, into ideas of redemption, how sin is imagined and categorized, in turn defines what we are to be redeemed from if we are members of a community that is organized around a a message of radical redemption, which is, of course, how earliest Christianity begins and then continues. So does everybody have a handout? Let me just um, lay out the neighborhood we'll be in chronologically and cosmically. And again, uh, I had this lovely graphic of the Ptolemaic universe that I was going to um, have on the projection for you this evening. Just remember that it didn't used to be a heliocentric solar system. It was a geocentric solar system. And this is not just a piece of scientific data. It's, It's a map of reality onto which religious convictions are also mapped. The earth is in the center of the universe because it is the worst place in the universe to be. It's the place where the heaviest, most material matter has sunk. It's the place where demons roam, where fate and chance can uh, and does afflict, do afflict the person who lives in the realm below the moon, and where flesh in particular is extremely honorary. The further away you move from the earth, the better, the more organized, the more stable things get until once you're past the planets and at the realm of the fixed stars, you're in a place of eternity where astral realities have luminous, self-illuminating bodies, where body itself is more beautiful and more rational, and where things literally are closer to the really real. So by living in the center of the universe, people are at the place where things are the least real they can be, precisely because of the way that matter affects existence and experience here. Hold that in mind. It's a Hellenistic scientific model of the universe It's something that those of you who are familiar with the Bible will know sort of goes against the grain of what we encounter in Genesis when God frames the cosmos and pronounces what he sees good. And just trying to fit that idea of God and that particular religious scripture in with this model of the universe will be a lot of what the argument is about as we trace these imagined realities through the idea of sin. A second way to organize ourselves, if if the cosmic architecture of the Hellenistic system is one way to look at it, the other way, of course, is through time, which is why all of you have, first of all, on your handout sheet, a timeline, a chronology. The story I want to share with you really begins with Alexander the Great, who exports Greek culture on a large scale. Scholars refer to this 
exported mongrel type of Greek culture as Hellenism, and particularly through gymnasia, this model of education in the, from the post-classical um, city. Thanks to Alexander, Greek education, particularly rhetoric, is spread in those territories that Alexander conquers. The point about rhetorical education is that whenever we have a text to work from, if it is written by somebody who's a theologian or um, some kind of spokesman for any one of these different communities we'll be looking at, chances are that they were trained in rhetoric. The point of rhetoric is to train people how to make oral arguments. People who, men who uh, were trained in the gymnasium were taught how to frame oral arguments by demeaning their opponent's position and, and emphasizing their own. And then the following day, switch sides and, and argue elsewhere. The point of rhetoric is not to give you a description of the opponent. The point of rhetoric is to ridicule the, appoint, the opponent. So that just because we'll have a contemporary who's obviously actively engaged with somebody from whom we have no text, what he will be saying about that opponent almost certainly is not something that would be recognized as a fair description. It is a rhetorical presentation of the person and the opponent he's arguing against in order to build up his own position. A trope from this type of rhetorical education is how to read a text. The texts in question were usually things like wills or some kind of contract or pact where the interpretation of the text could be contested and with legal contracts almost certainly were. One of the ways to argue about the meaning of the text was to say that the intent of the author, despite what the text looked like, the intent of the author was clearly to go in a particular direction, and you point out verbal clues for how you could see through what the surface of the text said to what the author truly meant. The counter-argument to this is to say that the text itself tells you what it must mean. And the other interpretation is something falsely imported to it. In religious categories, this could be known as interpreting according to the spirit or according to the flesh. In terms of, again, textual argument, interpreting literally and interpreting typologically or allegorically. What I want you to think about is that those categories themselves don't actually let us know what they mean. They are respective positions between two contestants. And Cicero, for example, in his handbooks on oratory, talks about if your opponent says potato, say potato, and this is the way you make the case. And that is a lot. Again, we'll be hearing this argument about how to read a text because there are two big texts that are contested for in the centuries we'll be looking at together. One text is the text of the Septuagint, which is the uh, second item on your timeline. The Jewish translation of Jewish scriptures that was completed by about minus 200, taking the 
Hebrew and occasionally the Aramaic and putting it into Greek. And if Jews in the Western diaspora hadn't done this, I don't know what we would be gathered for to talk about this evening, but it almost certainly wouldn't be Christianity because Christianity as we know it is a product of the Hellenistic diaspora and a product specifically of the availability of these Jewish stories in Greek. The other point to remember that's an immediate result of Alexander's conquest is that Jews, like everybody else, migrated voluntarily in this period. The first exile, the first diaspora into Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in the first temple in minus 586, had been an involuntary move. It had been an exile. This second dispersion of Jews was voluntary. It was not punitive. And the way that Hellenistic Jews speak of their moving away from the ancestral homeland out into the Greek-speaking diaspora is that they were colonizing Their metropolis, mother city, was Jerusalem, but the cities of the diaspora where they lived was their patrimony and their place of colonization, so that they were there because they wanted to be, not because they had been driven um, out of there. When we get to Justin Martyr tomorrow night, you'll see how the experience of the thickly populated Greek-speaking Jewish diaspora is represented and reimagined by hostile Gentile theologians. In minus 167, the Maccabean Revolt, which was a no to a kind of radical Hellenization that would have involved the worship of images in Jerusalem's temple. And the 140s, Rome begins to be the next empire uh, that moves out. And in 130s, I'm sorry, and in the year 37, Herod the Great is put into place. He's a third-generation convert to Judaism. He marries into the Hasmonean family, much to their regret, I'm sure, or those few who survived. And um, he expands the second temple on a magnificent, unbelievable scale. And I have a beautiful picture of this. Come back tomorrow night and see it. But the, what Herod did was landfill. He takes the mountain of the Lord and he fills it up so that he builds a huge plaza. And he rings the temple area with a fence around the outside of the precincts that runs for almost nine-tenths of a mile. And it is enormous and it is built specifically for tourism as well as for Uh, self-advertisement, and as well as uh, for something that would be uncontested on on the part of his subjects. Not if they had contested it, it would have made that much of a difference. Um, Herod was not so great with civil liberties, but he was a terrific architect. And this, this house that he built, the house of God that he built, is a magnet for people who, the good thing about empire is domestic peace within the boundaries, People would go on tours. They'd see ancient temples in Egypt, and then they'd work themselves counterclockwise. They could then go 
to Jerusalem and see that temple. They could go up to the Golan, see the temple at Banyas. They could go on through Syria and so on and make, and make a tour of temples. These people are not Jews for the most part. Jews, if they chose to come, could come on pilgrimage. But a lot of non-Jews were attracted to the temple as they were attracted to visiting other temples as well, which means that this place that was the particular site of the enactment of ancestral practices was also a place of attention and interest for people who were not members of that group. The temple in Jerusalem, as any temple in antiquity, was basically an outdoor butcher house. It was responsible for the ritual redistribution of animal bodies. Sometimes the animal body would be burned entirely. Other times it would be divided up between the worshiper, the altar, and the priest. And if not an animal body, then other, um, other types of offerings could be brought. But in any case, much of the matter that goes on in the temple was interpreting the script that begins in the second half of Exodus and goes through the remaining uh, four and a half of the five books of the Torah and enacting those rituals there. Gentiles were not part of that ritual activity. But here's a phrase to think with. The temple was a house of prayer for all the nations. Non-Jews could go and show their respects to the God of Israel, which is a very sensible thing to do if you're in a place where the God lives. A normal presupposition of everybody in antiquity is that gods particularly lived around their altars and in their sanctuaries. And we find this stated in Matthew 23 when Matthew's Jesus says that whoever swears by the sanctuary also swears by, by him who dwells in it, meaning the God of Israel. And I'll walk you through other places in Paul's letters where Paul refers to God's um, presence in the temple in Jerusalem. If you're in the presence of a God in the Mediterranean, what you do is you show respect. It's the, simply the sensible thing to do. This is also true for that Jewish population that is living in diaspora cities. By living in these Greek cities, resident Jews were in the territories that were dedicated to other gods. And we know from a remarkable amount of traditions preserved in Greek, saved by later Christian writers like Eusebius, that Greek-speaking Jews in the diaspora got very good gymnasium educations. There was no such thing as secular activity in an ancient city. One way to imagine ancient cities is that they themselves are religious institutions. That's certainly how they would look at themselves. And the well-being of the city depended on showing respect to the gods who took care of the city so that um, the human commonwealth could flourish. Jews, by getting gymnasium educations, studied pagan classics. They would be involved in going to buildings that had um, visual representations of the gods who peopled the epics that they were being trained on with rhetoric. They were perhaps town councilors. We have the na Jewish names inscribed along with Greek ones as members of town councils or as ephibs, which is a kind of um, 
way to get male teenagers out of the house that antiquity came up with. It was a type of uh, get them out of the house, train them in athletics and rhetoric, and then when they when higher function returns, let them back into the home. So, but um, Jews also. Um, my third and last child is um, now in college. I really think this was a brilliant way to figure out how to do this in antiquity. In any case, Jews outside of territorial Israel also had to make their own comfortable relationship and show respect to gods that were not theirs. Uniquely in antiquity, Jews in principle were not supposed to worship other gods. And the line that seems to have been fairly universally held was not actually sacrificing to other gods, which is a public, a public statement and is a particular way of coming into community with the people whose god that, that truly is. But there are lots of other ways to show respect to gods, and there's a, an enormous range of Hellenistic information about ways that Jews found to be good neighbors, not only with their human neighbors, but also with their numinous neighbors in the cities um, of their residents. To talk about the origins of Christianity, we have to consider not only the Hellenistic matrix of Jewish um, cities out in the diaspora, but also, in particular, those Jews who lived in the Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. In other words, I am starting, I know the Jesus Seminar wouldn't like this, but I'm actually going to make the argument or presuppose that Jesus of Nazareth, as an historical personage, did have something to do with what will eventually um, become Christianity. Is the rain starting now? It sounds nice. Good, we all made it. Maybe it'll stop by the time I'm finished. Two Jews who were not literate in the Greek classics, who were not Ephebes in diaspora cities, and who never knew the Septuagint, are John the Immerser. I'm calling him that. Of course, I really mean John the Baptist, but there's a reason why I'm using this word instead and um, Jesus of Nazareth. And that continues the timeline below the, I didn't know how to indicate the hinge between BCE and CE. Um, these, uh, these two, seem, their language seems to be Aramaic. The biblical tradition they would have been familiar with would have been either Aramaic or Hebrew. They are not familiar with the Septuagint. We don't have any texts from them. We have later mentions of them in texts that come from after the year 70. After the year 70, notice Josephus, a Jewish historian who was a Jerusalemite priest, and also um, that's when the Gospels cluster. The ones I put there are the ones that are familiar to most of us because they're still um, published and in the New Testament. And those are the sources for looking back at these two people. Paul, who's in the 40s and 50s, is a diaspora Jew. His first language is Greek. His text is the Septuagint. And he has an older, near contemporary, Philo of Alexandria, who was extremely wealthy, extremely well-educated, and who left an enormous body of commentary on scripture, 
where he knit together Greek philosophical perspectives and the biblical text in Greek. The origins of biblical theology, and by theology I mean specifically not religious sentiments, I mean specifically organized, rational discourse about the nature of the divine. The birth of that exercise in terms of the God presented in the Bible occurs with Philo. So Philo and, to a a much less degree, Paul, represent um, one type of late Second Temple Jew that will have a lot who will have a lot to do with subsequent Christianity. John the Immerser and Jesus of Nazareth, through the stories that are told about them, will have um, a lot to do with the way Christianity is constructed. But what unites all four of those people together? is that they were Jews who were still part of a sacrificial culture. When all of those men were alive, the temple in Jerusalem functioned as the site, as the divinely mandated site for the enactment of ritual behaviors that had been prescribed in Jewish ancestral texts. After the year 70, the temple is not available anymore. And that begins to change, among other things, the way that ancient Jewish populations had to come to grips with sin. One of the important functions of the temple was to serve as a place of atonement. And part of the offerings that were given not only with um, Yom Kippur, a major national holiday, but also with individual um, offerings, that had to do with the whole process of acknowledgement of wrongdoing, of repenting having done something wrong, and then of purification, and then going up and, um, and uh, making an animal offering. This is just not possible after the year 70, which means our, other than Paul, our earliest evidence for ancient Christianity, and which is still a form of Judaism in this uh, period of the first century, Our earliest evidence then shifts to something where the temple isn't available as a way to understand atonement. This will have a major impact on the ways that the figure of Jesus is presented as himself a blood offering who serves to reconcile humanity despite the sins of humanity to the God of Israel. And it means that an entire enormous ocean of vocabulary, ritual vocabulary, has to be reinterpreted so that it can continue to resonate and be spiritually meaningful in a a situation where it is no longer possible to enact those rituals. Now, this is traumatic in one way, and another way it's not. And that is that most of the Jews in the diaspora were not going to the temple um, whenever they thought they should because it was very hard and very expensive to make a pilgrimage. Diaspora Judaism had made its peace with long-distance engagements with the ritual activity going on in the temple by contributing to the temple tax, which paid for the overhead with the temple and which involved them in the support of the temples functioning for the nation of Israel. But the temple wasn't part of their... Um, foundational reality, the way it would be for somebody in Jerusalem. 
So it's an adjustment, and yet it's an adjustment that in many ways had been uh, accomplished socially and uh, religiously for the, the westward Greek-speaking Jewish populations in any case. Okay. I would like to think about the category of sin by thinking first of all with the issue of how do you know you've sinned and what do you do about it if that's what you've done. Jewish tradition is heaven signaling something to me. <laughs> John, I told you I should have sacrificed that white goat before. Um, okay. Um, I'm a mom, so if I need to speak louder, just tell me and I'll do it. Okay. Um, how do you take care of sin and how do you know if you sin? The Bible itself offers an enormous range of categories to think with if you want to be scrupulous about this type of question. Jewish tradition, certainly um, by this period, had organized Jewish piety in ways that... Um, regulated virtually every aspect of life, and then Jews had arguments about how to interpret the different types of regulations that they were, um, they were seeing. But there was a kind of script available in the Bible which provided a moral and ritual roadmap which was available for Jews who wanted to be engaged with this type of thing and which told Jews what to do in the instance of their sinning and then wanting to make atonement and be excused. Modern anthropologists have gone at the rules that are presented in the Jewish Bible and come up with social anthropological theories of what ancient Jews were actually doing when they did the sacrificing. Mary Douglas's work has been absolutely essential for understanding these ritual uh, regulations as a form of social code indicating what type of society um, was bounded by these types of religious concerns. Um, Milgram, in his very important commentary in Leviticus, talks about the ways that different things are cleansed or polluted in, by the different rituals and what Jews might have actually thought. All I know is that for the Jews of the ancient period, nobody questions the ritual at all. It's what you do. Certain groups may not like the way other groups are doing the ritual, but in terms of actually saying that this type of ritual is correct, specifically and particularly blood sacrifices, that thing that is most foreign and most unnerving to moderns when we think about ancient religion, the idea of cult and of blood offerings was absolutely unquestioned. I quote two 4th century CE thinkers, one a Neoplatonic pagan and the other a Neoplatonic Christian, urging absolutely that this sort of practice and piety is absolutely unquestionable. Celestius, um, who writes in the mid-4th century and who is pagan, says simply, prayer without sacrifice is mere words in order to affect the kind of closure and communication, you have to have a sacrifice. And Augustine said in roughly the same period, we can be purified only with blood. Blood itself is a special medium 
which God, who in some of these systems, not in all of them, is the author of blood. And blood is one of those media that can affect not only a purification of the person who sinned, but also a kind of recommunication and reconnection with the deity. It's true of the Jewish deity, and it's true of his other contemporary deities as well. Purity systems are native to all sacrificial cultures. Purity systems are the etiquette by which somebody prepares him or herself to approach the zone of divine human activity around the altar. Again, when you go to the altar of a god, you're going into the presence of a god. The Jewish etiquette are known to us because they're available in paperback in English and right in front of us if we open a Bible. And that's what is in the middle of your handout sheet after the timeline. There were two types of um, etiquette that were important. It's presented narratively in the five books of the Torah in terms of etiquettes that obtained around the tabernacle wandering in the wilderness. Scholars assume that it actually is um, a report of the sorts of things that were enacted in the temple and um, it's a sort of categories that people thought with when they were worshiping at the temple up to the year 70. One category is pure and impure. And I give you the, um, the Hebrew and the Greek words there too. There are two different types of purity and impurity, however, that are spoken of in scripture and that regulate access to the altar. One type of um, one type of impurity is, and these are horrible terms that don't really fit, but it's, it's the best people have been able to come up with. One type is natural impurity, also called ritual impurity or liturgical impurity. And that type of impurity is something you get in the normal course of being alive. Uh, menstrual fluid can give it to you, seminal fluid can give it to you, touching a corpse, which you're supposed to do to bury it, can give it to you. There are all sorts of things that can give you this sort of impurity. Usually that impurity is dealt with by a system of wash and wait. In other words, it is not anything ethical. It is contagious. If somebody impure bumps into you, then you have a secondary degree of impurity. But it's not something that is ethical. It has nothing to do with ethics. It has to do with, in a sense, physical status. The remedy for that type of impurity is purification. A second type of impurity, and again, it's, um, it's an awkward vocabulary, is moral impurity. People will call this metaphorical impurity or morals. I, it gets me nervous because it sounds like morals are more important than rituals. So this is the really fun. But it's, it's a different kind. It is, it is a voluntary condition of impurity. It is not contagious. But because it is volitional, it does have ethical implications. That is sinful, that type of moral impurity. And God himself specifies to, um, to Israel what causes moral impurity. Usually these purity rules are only for Israel, but there is an interesting type of fuzziness with the second category of impurity that will carry over into what we're trying to figure. Paul is teaching his Gentile 
listeners in the diaspora when he talks with them about sin. And it's also ambiguous in its biblical presentation itself because while God is giving these categories to Israel, God is also explaining to Moses that the reason the people of the land, who are not Israel, are being driven off is because they committed these abominations. Usually this has to do with two perennial favorites in all of this literature, um, idol worship and fornication. And we'll see a lot of um, idol worship and fornication as we continue with our consideration of sin. So it's not just that there is a non-ethical form of impurity. There is also this type of um, uh, ethical type of impurity as well. The other category that regulates proximity to holiness is the category of common and holy. Common is something that is ordinary. Holy is something that has been set apart from the ordinary and been, in a sense, dedicated to God. In terms of the nations, for example, Israel has been set apart by God for God. And that, has a, that language and that idea has a lot to do with the myth that's presented in, um, in the Jewish Bible. Israel is set aside. It's been sanctified. It's made holy by being set apart by God. The opposite of holy is not evil. The opposite of holy, I'm obviously using the uh, English word, the opposite of holy is common. There is no ethical uh, negative quality to something that's common. A priest, for example, who's defective, physically defective, can be pure, and he can eat his sacrificial um, meat in a state of purity, but because he's physically defective, he is, he is whole. He is um, common, and therefore he cannot enter into that special radioactive hot zone of activity and communication between God and humanity that's engaged around the altar. So it's these two etiquettes that are specific to a sacrificial culture that are part of the way Paul is thinking when Paul begins to try to engage Gentiles in the enterprise of preparing for the advance of the kingdom of God and the redemption promise to Israel, which the Gentiles are also going to be swept up in. Those categories, as we'll see momentarily, are something that um, Paul himself will organize his organize his letters about. John the Immerser. I'm using immersion as another translation of the term baptizing because it sounds so Christian. We call him John the Baptist, and then it seems like he's doing baptisms, and then that seems like a sacrament, and then um, it's often running out of its historical context. We have two uh, literatures, again, that talk about John who did not leave any texts. The first is a quotation from the Gospel of Mark, saying that John appeared in the wilderness preaching immersion for the forgiveness of sins and that everybody from Judea and Jerusalem went out and they were immersed by him in the River Jordan confessing their sins. Which sounds like it is the act of immersion that somehow removes um, the sin. We have 
uh, probably a near contemporary report in Josephus's Antiquities, where Josephus says that John had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows, and piety toward God, and in so doing, to join in immersion. This immersion was for the purification of the flesh. Once the soul had previously been cleansed by right conduct. How are we to think of John the Immerser when we're trying to begin to get a handle about the idea of sin in the very earliest period of Christianity? One of the biggest changes that's happened in the scholarly world since um, I was introduced to it back in the 1970s is the way that Judaism, which is not a unitary religious phenomenon in this period, just like it's not now, but Judaism is seen as the context of Christianity rather than as its contrast to Christianity. How do we look at John the Immerser and this message about purification and the forgiveness of sins and make sense of it because one thing we do know from the Gospels is that John stood in some kind of mentoring relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. There's no reason to assume that going down to the river and being dunked by John was a one-time event. Immersions in Judaism are things that one does as part of a purification process. There's no reason to think that um, it is a substitute for temple activity, which if you pick up earlier commentaries, will be how it's presented. John is doing this, and the reason why he ends up getting executed is because he's baptizing people, and what that means is that they don't have to go to the temple anymore. But there's no reason to think that's what it meant. So this, again, the immersions have something to do with purity protocols, We don't know how many times they could be repeated, but they are about, they're tied up in this complex of purification and ethical preparation for entering into the zone of activity around the altar. According to the later synoptic gospels, John was also teaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, which is one of the reasons why he called people to repentance. If this is so, then this would be something else that is echoed in the teaching we have of Jesus of Nazareth. Unlike John, Jesus didn't settle in one place and have people come to him. Jesus evidently went from village to village soliciting people. According to one uh, clause in the Gospel of John, which is um, disowned a few sentences later, Jesus himself was baptizing people, immersing people um, as part of his own mission. We don't, know, we don't know what the story actually was, but this continuity of the idea of God being about to definitively intervene in history was a message that seems to unite John the Baptist and Jesus, and it's something we see and hear translated into Greek within a few decades when we get to the evidence of Paul's letters, where Paul is saying the same thing. This time, in light of the resurrection that Paul himself has experienced, 
He has seen the risen Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is convinced that the kingdom's arrival is even closer than John and Jesus might have thought it was. But it's that nexus of a dramatic interruption and a defeat of evil by Israel's God that's uniting all these three people and is continuing to... Remember, the temple is still standing when they're talking this way and thinking this way. And they're using a lot of the language and the protocols of sacrifice in order to make this call to repent and prepare for proximity with God. This is why repentance is necessary when God himself will manifest himself. One last, it used to be 30 years ago, I could count on most of the people, most of my students, knowing um, what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, now it's, they sort of know that there are ten, and sometimes, if any of you have read Steve Prothero's book, a lot of kids that so, think that Sodom and Gomorrah were married, um, that <laughs> people know that there were ten, but they're kind of, they've done math concepts. They're not sure of how exactly. So those are, there they are, right there. The, in terms of breaking them down into these two tablets of the law, when Josephus says that John is preaching um, piety and justice, that is a simple code for he's preaching the Ten Commandments. The first five rules are about um, directed toward God and how the parents... Um, gotten the fifth position there. I'm not sure, but I'm sure a lot of rabbis had a lot to say about that. But those are the rules that have to do with the correct, the correct relationship with between um, the human being and God, the Jewish human being and God. And justice has to do with social relations between people. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no envying. This type of list um, is going to be expanded and rhetorically embellished um, by Paul. And a lot of these um, violations of this are going to be attributed to Gentiles who were doing, breaking these and even more rules um, until Paul says they got the Holy Spirit thanks to Paul. In terms of the way Jews imagined sin as an sort of an historical event that establishes a plumb line for the rest of where they're, they're going in these first few decades of the origins of Christianity. The, you know, Adam and Eve, that started history. It's not something that is as, as big on the radar screen for late Second Temple Jews as it will be subsequently in later um, both Christian and, and Jewish traditions. The paradigmatic Jewish sin was the worship of the golden calf. Here God has knocked himself out, gotten the children of Israel out of Egypt, worked all these miracles, gotten them to see the Ten Commandments, and Moses is gone for a few days, and what happens? The golden calf. And what happens when they start worshiping the golden calf? You've seen the movies. The keg party. So um, it's this fornication and idolatry nexus that is seen as really a kind of primal sin. And it is the continuity of that that describes pagan culture for those Hellenistic Jews who feel like talking about pagan culture in an unenthused way, like the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of, the, of Romans. The paradigmatic Gentile sin is worshiping lower gods. 
particularly through the use of images of those gods. The idols are not the god themselves. The idols are the representations of the gods. And then, of course, once you do uh, worship idols, you also indulge in porneia and various vices. One last caveat before, technically, I begin my lecture. No. Um, In antiquity, all monotheists were polytheists. This is a God-filled universe. It is absolutely congested with divine personalities. Jews knew that other gods existed. Jews shouldn't worship those other gods. Paul uh, will dismiss other gods as cosmic lightweights, mere elements of the universe. The rulers of this age who have crucified the son of the God of Israel. He's not saying their powers are trivial, but he's saying that they are not the high God. And he's saying that the only high God is his God, the God of Israel. And so when he um, scolds his Gentile community in Corinth, and he says, look, we all know that there are many gods and many lords, but we worship the God of Israel. So there, it's not that other gods don't exist. It's that you shouldn't worship them. The trouble is, what happens if you're a god and a human is not showing you respect? Gods are Mediterranean egos also. Cult makes gods happy. Not showing gods respect makes gods unhappy. If gods are unhappy, they make humans unhappy. And so in this sense... Paul, by urging his Gentile communities to stop worshiping the gods who are native to them, is putting them vis-a-vis heaven in a dangerous and exposed situation. They are, in a sense, sinning against their own gods by not showing respect to them. What Paul assures them is that the power of his God through his son, Christ, will protect them from anything these lower gods can do. A word for these lower gods, given in the Septuagint translation of Psalms, is daimones, demons. The gods of the nations are demons. And this is a way to acknowledge that this this foreign pantheon has power, but that um, you can be protected from that power in Jesus. How do these sacrificial categories relate to Gentiles? Gentiles are not responsible for the laws God revealed to Israel. They are not subject to the impurities um, that Israel is subject to. They are not obligated to the same type of rituals that um, Israel uh, took on. What is the problem with Gentiles? Are they impure in general? Here's where thinking realistically about the physical presence of the second temple helps us think with this question. Does it make sense to look at um, Gentile communities as just impure in general? And the answer is no. If Gentiles were impure in general, they couldn't be in that largest courtyard around the temple through which every Jew going to the next inner courtyard in order to make his sacrificial offering would be bumping into. 
right? You have to, there's a great concern for purity, particularly in the temple area. That's one of the strictest places for concerns with purity. If Gentiles are allowed in the temple area, then they're not, quote, impure in general. Yet they're not able to get close to the altar. So what's wrong with them? Well, they're not set aside. By comparison with Israel, Gentiles are whole. They are common. And it's Israel that's been set aside, and so you have this kind of filtration system that literally calibrates how close you can get to the altar. But whatever it was with Gentiles that makes them common, they're certainly purer than a menstruant Jew or a Jew with leprosy who cannot get anywhere near the temple area at all. So there's, how do you figure out what's, what the problem is with Gentiles? It has to be addressed if you're in this apocalyptic framework of repenting before God reveals himself in glory. The problems seem to have something to do with their association with idol worship. The fact that they worship other gods, and this is the normal definition of what it is to be a not-Jew in antiquity. Gentiles, in other words, are not intrinsically impure, but idolatry is always and everywhere the abomination par excellence. They are profane, meaning that they are common, and they are involved with idol worship. And this makes their um, involvement in this radically radioactive apocalyptic Judaizing movement that's hitting the diaspora synagogues where pagan Gentiles are found to be found anyway as interested um, bypassers and interested sometimes occasionally actual loosely affiliated uh, members of the Jewish community. When this message hits those Gentiles in the diaspora, what Paul is doing is bringing a radically Judaizing message to them. He is demanding a level of Jewish behavior from these Gentiles that the synagogues that they were frequenting never made of them. Paul insists that his Gentiles, if they are in Christ, absolutely stop worshiping their own native deities. It is a, a demand that he makes that is categorical. Once you have been baptized into Christ's death, you, you may not worship idols anymore. Apparently somebody in Corinth uh, wasn't quite clear on this, and Paul gave the ultimate Jewish whammy, don't even eat with him. Right? This, man, this man is off, off the list. What is the problem if the nations routinely had their own gods? What is the problem with that? It's that their power is about to be overthrown, and Paul is doing this amazing outburst of Judaizing activity where he is forcing, if these people will be in his communities, he is demanding of these pagans that they act like Jews, even though they should not, quote, become ex-pagans by becoming Jews, which is, we use the word conversion for what those symptoms, uh, symptoms would mean. They are not responsible for ancestral Jewish practices. They shouldn't be circumcised. They don't have to worry about dietary 
um, restrictions. They don't have to do a lot of the things that Jews have to do if they want to be uh, pious and righteous according to their own measure. But what these Gentiles, Gentiles have to do is to publicly assume that behavior in the diaspora city that was uniquely associated with Jews, which is not to participate in the cult shown to the patron deities of a particular city. It is, um, I'm convinced, of course, how should I know, circumcision would have been easier then, but maybe not, then, than having to forego this type of public activity of uh, showing respect and taking care, in a sense, of the well-being of your city. Why does Paul make this argument? It's partly because he is convinced on the strength of his experience of the resurrection that the kingdom is now even closer than when we first believed, he tells one of his congregations. But it's also because of something that he has seen happen to these Gentiles in Christ that has, in a sense, knit them back into the sacrificial protocols of Judaism. And sacrificial Judaism is the only Judaism that Paul knows. Thanks to their exposure to the message about Christ, thanks to their baptism in Christ, the Holy Spirit, says Paul, or sometimes he says the Spirit of Jesus, has come into these Gentiles so that they are no longer slaves to sin, doing all those nasty Gentile things that he says, look, Gentiles weren't really doing all that stuff or the Romans never could have built aqueducts, right? It was, it's the rhetorical presentation of what pagan culture is. But thanks to the Holy Spirit through baptism, through this ritual enactment of purification, his Gentiles have changed their ontological category. Paul didn't really speak German philosophical English, <laughs> but it's easy to forget that. No, he, what has happened thanks to the Holy Spirit, which, or God's Spirit, which has been given to these Gentiles through baptism, is that they have been, the English word resting on the Latin word, is sanctified. But if you look at your little double column, you'll see that sanctified fits in with hagios. And he will call them this, the saints, the ones who have been set aside, or kodesh. Through baptism, the Holy Spirit has moved these Gentiles into another category so that they, like Israel, in principle, have been set aside from, and then here's the problem with Paul's vocabulary. His Gentiles have been set aside from Gentiles. He has no other way of describing this. When he yells at his Gentile communities to stop acting like Gentiles, he says, stop acting like Gentiles. It's the only word there is. He's in a two-religious option universe. There is Israel, and there's everybody else. Our word Gentile and our word pagan rest on the same Greek word. It gives us a kind of wiggle room so we can say somebody is not a Jew if we call them a Gentile, but it doesn't say necessarily anything about their religious affiliation. Gentiles were pagans, and pagans were Gentiles for Paul when he was thinking with Greek. But thanks to this eschatological miracle, 
which it is. These people are changing their native behaviors. They're altering their, their own ancestral custom. They are being protected from demons. They can prophecy. All this sort of charismatic power is being given to them, and that is the mark for Paul that he's even more right than he thought he was already. And Paul never thinks he's wrong. <laughs> Paul thinks that as a result of this charismatic infusion to these pagans, so that they stop acting like pagans, what he's seen is the spirit being poured forth over the nations, which is another one of the eschatological signs, so that the person who knows, knows what time it is on God's clock. Precisely the response he's seeing in these Gentile communities is reinforcing his own sense of the urgency and the correctness of his message. But when he's talking about the Gentile sanctification, he's not speaking as it can sound in English of a kind of, oh, it's nice there, you know, they've been made holy. It means something spatial. It means something ritual. It means that they are fit to come into proximity with the zone of, of holiness that is represented, first of all, by the temple. When Paul uses temple language, as he does continuously to his Gentile audiences, he says, you are a temple. You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. Way back in the 20th century, when I was at university, that, we were told that that meant that Paul didn't like this temple in Jerusalem and that this was a substitute temple and that the community was a new temple. If you train yourself to remember that if Paul is writing before the year 70, he doesn't know that there's going to be no temple. What he's doing is, in fact, bringing these nations under the umbrella so that they are turning to the God of Israel, just like people like Isaiah and um, Hosea and Micha had said that they would before God's last put out the light is spoken. What happens after the temple is destroyed is that this vocabulary remains in Paul's letters, but the topography that interprets the vocabulary begins to switch from temple and ritual space to the idea of the Greco-Roman universe. And it's that transposition, the way that Paul's letters and the way that the early Christian message will be translated in the period after the destruction of the temple and where sin will be imagined in, with different nuances and with different points of exit and entry that I will get to tomorrow night when perhaps it won't be raining. Thank you very much. I think Paul can stay maybe 10 minutes or so of question and answer. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Right, good. I'll stay here just to shut it off in 10 minutes or not. Okay. Please, yes. To what extent did the systems and conventions you've described begin as or validated as a form of public health policy? You mean are purity rules good for your health? You want to 
People over there, why don't you give that? I, people in the other part of the room may not have heard your question. Uh, I asked to what extent these, um, these systems began as a form of public health policy. Did everybody hear the question? How much do the purity rules have to do with ancient ways of hygiene? I think when they do happen to coincide with hygienic things, it's serendipitous. You know, washing your hands can never be bad, but it's, it's, I don't think it's their motivation, and there's nothing dirtier about um, one type of flesh than another type of flesh in a society that doesn't have um, refrigeration. So, um, but I'm, I don't do that kind of anthropology. I think that the other thing is that we are very aware of this thick ritual stuff in Judaism because it's part of what's available in our Bibles. But this sort of ritual protocol was absolutely native to the Mediterranean period. All gods, all cities, all altars have this type of thing. So we could say, are all these purity rules... Or is, is cleanliness literally next to godliness? Maybe, but only accidentally, because I think it's, it's about other, other things. Is that, yes, I'm sorry. You'd mentioned on. The microphone is coming. We all want to hear you. You'd mentioned early um, sin, do you know it? And you'd mentioned the Jewish tradition, laws, moral, ritual, roadmap, but no one questioned ritual, blood sacrifice purity problem. But then you mentioned a second point, what to do about it, and I don't remember your answer. Oh, what to do about, um, what to do about Jewish sin? Yeah. Sin, do you know it, number one? Number two, what do you do about it? Um, you, um, first of all, you real, the first step is you realize that you have sinned. That's the great thing about Nathan coming to King David, right? Jacques, when uh, uh, he tell, Nathan tells the parable of the um, well, David's just done something very wicked with Bathsheba, and he should have figured that out before Nathan came in. But in any case, what you do is you realize something is wrong. You repent it. You repent of it. And then, uh, depending on what the particular sin is, there are um, calibrations of the sort of offering that you, uh, that you make. For example, let's say you were in a, a, a real estate deal and you defrauded somebody. You have to... Th- listen, people are... Demons change, cosmologies change, what counts as sin change. Humans are amazingly constant. The, what you do is you have to pay 20% over what the, if you stole a dollar from him, you have to give him a dollar twenty. And then also you try to repair the relationship um, by making an offering um, at the altar. And there, what's, there are nice details about this in Leviticus that the... Um, that are caught in later Christian narratives in the Gospels for a purification ritual after uh, giving birth to um, Jesus. Mary, this is not a sin issue, this is a, a purity issue. Mary and Joseph offered doves, and that's specified in the list of um, what you should do to do purifications. And if a family's poor, they can just give that. So it's, it's, it's like a, a calibrated fee. And it's, but that's the sort of system that um, works. What you do in the diaspora is something else because diaspora um, Jewish communities aren't sacrificing. They could uh, give charity. They could do an extra contribution to the temple. They should. We have in Philo inventions of different types of immersions that um, aren't biblical. 
because Philo's living in Alexandria, but the, water is this wonderful medium for purification. So there's, there are improvisations that go on in the diaspora as well. Yes? This is Professor Martha Himmelfarb, who knows so much more about so many of the things I just drove by, that this is going to be a very scary question for me. I'm ready, Martha. I really thank you, Paula. It was really, um, not thank you for that, but thank, thank you for the lecture. It was a really very, very interesting. But the last question just helped me come up with a, a good way of asking the question that I've been thinking about through the last third or so of, of what you were talking about, and that is, as you say, in the diaspora, purity is really not that big a deal for Jews, even for the most pious Jews. Purity is really a big deal in, you know, if you, ritual purity is a big deal if you want to enter the temple. Moral purity is a big deal if you might pollute the land, namely the land of Israel. So if you're in the diaspora, you know, your anxiety level can be a little bit lower. So, so what, what in the end do you think is in it for Paul? That is to say, is he, is this a kind of the way he thinks about these issues is with, forgive the word, metaphors drawn from the temple, and that's why it matters to him to have Gentiles purified in some way? Or is it that he imagines that, you know, they're all going to be showing up at the temple and offering sacrifices sometime soon, and he wants to make sure, you know, that, that the house, in the right it's going to be the house of prayer for all nations, and, you know, why? so he wants them, you know, he's, even the house of prayer requires purity. I mean, do you... That, so that, that was sort of what was worrying me. I... Well, the, the Gentiles who are on, um, let's, let's call them pagans. The pagans who were on tours of, you know, I picture them getting off of Vegas buses, running up, looking at the temple, getting out, going, driving north, right? They're, they're not purified, and they don't need to be purified. They are normal practicing pagans who are also showing respect to the God of Israel when they're there. I think Paul's thinking um, eschatologically, but there's a way in which this, the, there's a kind of implicit temple architecture to the way he uses this language. And given the prophecies he will allude to in his, in his own letters to these Gentiles, he's talking about um, there being a kind of validation of the Christian movement. He is expecting, if he's within this normal prophetic paradigm of all the nations saying, oh, those Jews were right all the time. The God of Israel is the biggest God when the God of the universe reveals himself in glory. But what he's doing, I think, is partly having these people prepare by being in a state where they can be brought into proximity. He's talking about the, um, the Eucharist itself is not a substitution for temple sacrifice, but he, it is a substitution for pagan sacrifice. It's something that they should be... That's, that's how important the idea of sacrifice um, and how natural and normal the idea of sacrifice is to him. And I, I think um, that's part of it. But also, and I, I'm not quite sure how to weight this, but he's... I observe that he is making a virtue out of a necessity, which is what the whole argument at the end of Romans is. Because, in fact, the mission to Israel, he says, doesn't seem to be going well. Meanwhile, there's a surprise that Gentiles are are joining by, you know, twos and threes and tens in some places. 
And um, so he's saying that he's doing a variation on the prophetic script. The fact that it is a variation lets us know the prophetic script he's, he's dealing with. And in the inclusive prophetic tradition, all the nations at the end bury their idols and turn which is a word that comes into English as convert because Latin is converso and then it it ends up sounding like something else. But they don't convert to Judaism. What they do is turn to Israel's God. What he's doing is, I think, articulating this wrinkle in time where he finds himself anyway. And there's also something that, again, is, is hard for us to appreciate, I think, because we always look backwards. But he's living his life forwards. His letters are from mid-first century. That's as good as it gets in terms of our earliest written documents. But for him, it's already been almost 20 years since the resurrection. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And there's, he says it's so he can complete his mission. So I think all of those things go into the mix. We have time for one more question. Thank you so much for all of... I'm reeling with sin right now. I'm, I have a Enjoy. question. Sin, um, it seemed like you emphasized that sin was either idol worship or fornication. And I wonder how, or I mean, I'm, that may be reducing what you meant to say, but I'm curious about sin described in some of the prophets as offense, a, a, you know, a kind of a, a, a sin of... Uh, neglecting the widow or the orphan or more corporate sins of neglect or injustice. I'm sorry, and what are you wondering? I'm just curious how that fits into the... You said most sin is described as either fornication or... No, I'm saying that those are the parade example sins, but um, there's a whole list... that Paul, like many Hellenistic Jewish writers, gives a whole list of... Um, sins that, of course, Gentiles do. Um, that was the point of the sinless. And he, um, but that fits in terms of the second tablet of the law under, under righteousness, correct social relations, which is a lot of the burden of a lot of the passages in the Torah. So also. idolatry and, and fornication was mostly aimed those at are, pagans. I mean, those are the crowd pleasers, and those are the ones the, that are, yeah. are really dramatic. But, um, okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. And he says that you look at creation and you must realize that the Jewish God is the um, high God. But they don't honor God. Uh, they claim to be wise. They're actually fools. They exchange the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Well, that's the pagans all over the place. Or birds or animals and reptiles. That's the silly Egyptians, and everybody made fun of them for that. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They served the creature rather than the creator. Um, and so they were afflicted with dishonorable uh, passions, unnatural sexual relations, uh, base mind, and they are filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, gossip, slanderers, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He doesn't talk about feeding widows and orphans, but I wouldn't expect people like that to uh, do it. So, I mean, there's... um, Now, is this, again, a description of pagan uh, society? I doubt it, but rhetorically, it's fabulous because what's going to come in the rest of the letter is how how Paul can fix that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.